morning. Uh, my name is Josh. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, as always, it's good to be with you all this morning. Uh, we're currently in a se- series that's taking us through First and Second Peter. Um, and this morning, we're going to be looking at helpful wisdom and deception and be- going to be spending our time in the second chapter of Peter 2. Now, this, this chapter, like in chapter 1, aims to encourage Christians into pursuing the growth in godliness. But, but Peter here does the, the motivation, does the encouragement in almost a totally different way. Because we all know that there are multiple ways to encourage or motivate someone to do something. I've taught um, in the fourth through sixth grade class here for several years, hence the, the gray hair. And, and I've learned that there are a couple approaches to motivating kids to engage in class. I can start the class like I usually do, and I say, hey, kids, it's going to be a great morning. We're going to have a lot of fun. We're going to learn a lot about Jesus. We're going to spend a whole bunch of time in the Bible. We're going to play some games, and it's going to be awesome. But I need you to participate. I need you to be engaged. I need you to be respectful. I need you to focus. And I just start slanging candy like I'm a dolphin trainer, right? (laughs) Or I can walk in. I can look at the kids in their eyes and say, behave or I'm kicking you out. There's a positive motivation like we saw in chapter 1 where Peter is laying out the goodness and the good things to be had in pursuing growth and godliness. But today, we'll see negative motivation where Peter seeks to warn us about the consequences of not pursuing godliness and falling victim to false teachers. As we get into chapter 2, We'll see Peter state explicitly the primary reason he's writing this letter. There are these false teachers encouraging believers to abandon their pursuit of holiness and give themselves over to lawlessness. And with that being said, let's jump into the text and read again verses 1 through 3. He writes, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them bringing upon themselves swift destruction, and many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not sleep. This passage starts with a contrast, and it shows us how it connects to to chapter 1. Chapter 1 ends with Peter describing Holy Spirit-inspired revelation, and that's contrasted with the false revelation that's coming from false teachers. We aren't talking about divine revelation anymore. Right now, we're talking about human speculation. And what you'll notice is that in the first three verses, they're all future tense. There will be false teachers. They will secretly bring in heresies, and many will follow them. This sounds like something that's coming. That sounds like something that's in the future. But but then when speaking about these false teachers in verse 10, he starts speaking in the present. He talks in present tense because they're already there. Showing that the presence of false teachers is both a future expectation and a present reality. It's a principle for all God's people throughout all of time. Just as there are false teachers among the people of Israel, there will be false teachers among the church. Wherever authentic truth is offered, there will be counterfeits. And it's a certainty. So Peter now gives us a high-level description of these false teachers. Notice where they're coming from. He says false false teachers will arise among you. There aren't people harming the church from the outside. They're harming the church from the inside. They know how to act. They know how to speak. They know how to blend in. They count themselves among God's people, and they secretly bring in error. 
They're hiding their heresy by mixing it with truth to make it sound more legitimate. Not only that, these false teachers are going to be popular. Verse 2 says, many will follow after their teaching and their conduct. It's not going to be some small, weird offshoot. It's going to be widespread and mainstream. Verse 3 says that they will use false words. The Greek word here for false is actually the same word for mold, like molding clay. So the idea that Peter is trying to get across is that these false teachers will mold, massage, and the truth, shaping their words with the intention of misleading. They don't care if it's true. They only want to make it appealing. And the reason Peter wants us to know this is to warn us that not all Christian teaching is Christian teaching. And the same is true today. There are people and books and podcasts and TV shows that appear like they are Christian, and they aren't. And because not everything under the banner of Christian is good for, good for us, we have to be careful. If we know that there's a chance that bad can be mixed with good, we act cautiously. And this principle is at play all over the place in our daily lives. I love bite-sized snacks. The beauty in a bite-sized snack is that you can eat them by the handful, right? Handfuls of Skittles, pistachios, donut holes, bacon, all things I indiscriminately eat in the bunches. But what I won't eat in bunches, trail mix. And if you've been in kids' ministry, you know why. Because we don't like raisins. (laughs) So knowing that each hand of trail mix has the potential to have a single raisin in it, I do what every reasonable person will do. You carefully pick them all out. You inspect before you consume. This is a silly illustration to illustrate a very serious point. Because there's a risk. We can't just accept what we hear because it sounds good or because it's popular or because it makes us feel better or because it's coming from someone that calls themselves Christian. These are horrible ways for discerning truth from error. Because Peter tells us that it will sound appealing, that it will sound good. It will sound like something we want to believe, so we have to inspect what we consume. Just the existence of counterfeit teaching forces us to inspect all of our Christian teachers, including the ones in the village. Because it's that serious. It leads to destruction. Destruction here is judgment. It is ultimate judgment and destruction by God. And it awaits the people that follow the heresy of the false teachers and the false teachers themselves. Peter doesn't tell us exactly what what the false uh, teaching exactly consists of. We'll get more clues to that end in chapter 3. But here he tells us that the teaching amounts to a denial of the master that bought them. This reminds us of 1 Corinthians chapter 6 where Paul writes, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. The Bible uses this language to talk about redemption. We have been bought, we have been redeemed, we have been saved by Jesus. And as a result of that salvation, we no longer belong to ourselves, we belong to him. This makes him our master. The idea for master here is often used as a master of a house that owns servants and slaves. The implication is authority, often translated as sovereign. 
These false teachers claimed to have been redeemed and rescued by Jesus, but denied the authority Jesus had over their lives. They accepted Jesus as Savior, but rejected him as sovereign. And this gave them a bunch of freedom. Freedom to give themselves over to sex and greed. Freedom to exploit and deceive. Freedom to do whatever they wanted to do. And it looked good. It looked like it was working out because they were all getting away with it. No consequences in sight, no downside. And that's why Peter closes verse 3 by saying their destruction is not sleep and their condemnation is not idle. Even though it looks good, even though it looks attractive, there are serious consequences to living a life refusing Christ's rule. And you're going to make that point using three Old Testament examples. Let's read them, verses 4 through 9. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the, uh, upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, Greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. In these verses, Peter is detailing some of God's history to establish something of God's character. The whole passage is one, one big if-then statement. If God did these things in the past, then we can be sure he will do these same things in the future. And the first example he gives is most likely from Genesis 6. He's referring to the sin that the angels committed as they entered into relationships with human women. The second example um, Peter gives is that, that God did not spare Noah's entire generation for their wickedness. He wiped them out with a flood. And in the third and final example, God didn't spare the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. He turned their cities to ash, condemning them to extinction. And just to make sure we get the point, Peter says that, that God was making an example of these cities, using them to show what will happen to the ungodly. Here we see a clear and sobering fact that God doesn't let sin slide. He has a, a long history of bringing judgment on the wicked. The freedom these false teachers lived in and taught would be met with judgment. And Peter is putting this here as a warning to those that, that would be drawn away by their heresy. He's warning us about being deceived because of the certainty of judgment. But there's something interesting here. Because as he's making this point, he's layering, layering in this principle with another one. And that's illustrated by, by the presence of Noah and Lot. As sure as we are that God will punish sin, we are just as sure that God will rescue his own. The tricky part is that sometimes the way we think God will rescue isn't how God rescues. Take a look again at what he rescues Lot and Noah, what the rescues of Lot and Noah look like. These rescues weren't rescued from, from pain or discomfort or hardship. In two places, it tells us that Lot suffered. 
Verse 7 says he was distressed. Verse 8 says he was tormented. And the source of that distress and torment wasn't direct persecution. Rather, what made their lives difficult was being righteous in an evil world. God's rescue didn't deliver them from a hard life. God's rescue was ensuring they made it through safely. The, the, the older I get, the more I realize how exhausting it is to live life in a way that pleases God in a world that opposes him. With all the, the worries and the fears and the, and the temptations to wander, grieved by all of the wrongs and the tragedy and injustice, feeling so pressed down by the world around us and the weight that we're carrying, wondering how long can we continue carrying the burden? Wondering if the next piece of bad news is, a thing that makes, is the thing that finally makes our crosses too heavy for us to carry. And here I think Peter's pastoral instincts start to take over. Because the people that feel that burden, that feel that, that weight of living in a world that opposes them, he reminds us that despite how bad things get, our God will strengthen us and safely bring us home. So when we feel the pain and sadness and the sting of living in a world that's fallen, we can be encouraged to press on because God, because God will make sure we make it through. God did it in the past, he'll do it in the future. Now, now that Peter has established the certainty of the coming judgment, he tells us who it's coming for, saying that God knows how to keep the unrighteous under punishment, verse 10 especially those who indulge in the lust of the filing, passion and despise authority. And then for the rest of verse 10 and on through verse 16, Peter is going to show us how these false teachers match this description and as a result are under the punishment of God. Let's pick it up at the end of verse 10. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones, whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction. Suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing, they count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children." Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with a human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. This passage is describing the immoral conduct of these false teachers. The, their false teaching led them uh, into three main directions. We see their arrogance in verses 11 through 13. We see their lust in verse 14. And we see their greed in verses 15 and 16. Starting with their arrogance. So these false teachers blaspheme the glorious ones. Other translations will say celestial beings. This is a broad reference to angelic creatures. But we know that demons are in his mind because of what he says next. He says that not even angels blaspheme him. These false teachers are so overconfident in themselves that they are recklessly doing that, things that not even angels dare to do. And one of the things that helps us confirm this interpretation is the similarities present between Jude and 2 Peter 2. 
Jude and 2 Peter 2 are almost identical in various places. And where we are here in verse 11 is one of them. Jude, verses 8 and 9. Yet in like manner, people also relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Using Jude to help us understand Peter, we see that the point Peter is making is that these false teachers are breaking rank. And we know this because they are recklessly doing things that things that are greater than them don't dare to do. A while ago, my family was all kind of hanging out in the living room, and we were just, just talking. And my wife said something that apparently um, upset one of my kids. And they looked at my wife and said, be quiet, mama. And everything went silent. <laughs> and I gasped. And I looked at him and I shook my head and my heart's beating fast because I don't know what's going to happen because not even I talk to my wife like that. <laughs> my child speaking so foolish, foolishly towards someone greater than them is an arrogant rebellion. This is the idea that Peter is communicating. These false teachers had an inflated sense of authority and status. They were arrogant. They thought they were higher than angels, but Peter says they're actually like animals. And this gave way to their lust, their eyes full of adultery. They objectify every woman that they met. They're constantly searching out new ways to sin because they are never satisfied and in inviting people to do the same. And in verses 15 and 16, we get, a, we get a description of their greed in our fourth Old Testament reference for this morning. And it's Balaam in Numbers chapter 22 through 24. Balaam was an Old Testament prophet for hire. He was hired by Balak, the king of Moab, to curse God's people. So motivated by financial gain, Balaam got on his donkey and started heading towards Moab. But God sent an angel to stand in his way. Balaam didn't see the angel, but the donkey did and refused to move forward. Out of frustration, Balaam began to beat the donkey. And in response, God opened the mouth of the donkey and it spoke, doing what Peter describes as restraining the prophet's madness. Now, I've made plenty of mistakes in my life. I've, I've had some hairstyle choices that I'm not proud of. I bought a couple Will Smith CDs. <laughs> but, but I've never done anything so dumb that an animal had to stop me and say, whoa, man, you've gone too far. Right? Being rebuked by a donkey is not a good thing. This shows that, that Balaam was so far gone that his donkey had more reason than he did. Now, taking a step back, and looking at verses 10 through 16, the overarching point that Peter is making in regards to these false teachers is that although their immoral freedom make them feel like they are higher than angels, their way of thinking was actually lower than animals. They thought they were wise, but in reality, they were irrational and foolish. Now, Peter's drawing a straight line connecting their behavior to their belief, showing that bad doctrine will result in bad living. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 7, 20, you will know them by their fruit. One of the ways Peter is telling us to identify false teachers around us is to look at their lives, look at the fruit of their lives, look at their conduct. That will tell you whether or not they're true or false. And he's warning us about 
where this false teaching leads, moral bankruptcy. Might sound good, but in the end, he says it's madness. He's not done with it. Let's pick it back up, verses 17 through 19. He says, these are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh, those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. Now, as Peter rounds out the description of false teachers, we see him providing some really insightful commentary on their teaching. He calls them waterless springs and mist driven by wind. He's using metaphors because in each of those cases, there's a promise of refreshing water. But it turns out to be an illusion. These teachers promise something that they cannot deliver. And the method they, sell, they use to sell their deception is speaking loud boasts of folly. They speak loudly and confidently. They sounded like they knew what they were talking about. So it was much easier for people to believe them. But even though their words are empty, they are still dangerous because they use these words to entice new believers. And the word for here for entice is to bait. And the bait that they're using to draw in new believers into an immoral lifestyle is freedom. They are promising Freedom, freedom to do, freedom to be, freedom to say, freedom to enjoy, whatever you wanted to do. This is what drew people in. And the assumption that sits behind this attraction to freedom is a common one. It's the assumption that what stands between me and my happiness are rules. What's preventing me from living a life of happiness and joy are boundaries. And if I can just shake off those restrictions, if I can just walk past those boundaries, I would have the freedom to live a life the way that would finally make me happy. It's the same thought the prodigal son had when he looked out his father's window and saw freedom and joy. He just needed to get out from underneath his father's roof and his father's rules. This Peter says, is the illusion that they use to draw people in. But they can't offer what they don't have. They says that they are slaves to their own corruption. And this line brings everything full circle. Remember, in verse 1, these men denied the master that bought them. They refused to be slaves and servants of Jesus. So instead, they became slaves of corruption. And this is what Peter has been hinting at at the entire chapter. The denial of Jesus as Lord looks like freedom, but it's not. Because if Jesus won't rule over you, your sin will. Sex isn't bad. Money isn't bad. But both of those things make horrible masters. And if we had total freedom to just pursue everything we wanted to do and, and, and enjoy everything that we wanted to enjoy, we would destroy ourselves with the things that we love. He's warning us about being deceived because these promises are empty. This is why we celebrate the freedom that we have in Christ. Jesus is the only one that can break the power of that sin has on us, controlling us by our sinful desires. The only true freedom is freedom submitted. Freedom submitted to Christ. Everything else is fake. Everything else is an illusion. That's why Proverbs 14, 12 says, there's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it's death. 
With that in mind, we finish up verses 20 through 22. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them to never have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the, what the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow, wallow in the mire. Peter is using very strong language here to paint a picture of a person that knows and understands the gospel, that has shown some growth, even began to deal with their sin in their life, but ultimately gives themselves over to a sinful lifestyle that they profess to be saved from. Peter says, in instances like this, it would have been better for them to have never, never heard the gospel than to hear the gospel, embrace it for a little while, and then reject it. Now, this isn't referring to someone who is genuinely saved. There are a few reasons we know that in the surrounding context and, and in, as, in the, as well as the other passages in the Bible. But there's a good explanation for this right here in verse 22. He says that these people are like a dog that returns to its vomit and a pig that returns to the mud. Now, although the idea of a dog returning to its vomit is gross, it's not surprising. And although it wouldn't be weird to see a pig, a clean pig return to wallow in the mud, those things aren't strange. These things wouldn't be strange or weird because that's just what dogs and pigs do. It's in their nature to do it. And so the point that Peter make, is making becomes clear. The people that he has in his mind are the people that after hearing and learning about the gospel make some good changes in their life only go, to go back to giving themselves over to their sin. They do this thing because this is in their nature to do it. They do it because they were never changed in the first place. Peter, Peter isn't teaching that God's people can be lost. What he's teaching is that not everyone in the church is part of God's people. That's why he tells us in chapter 1 to practice and grow in the qualities associated with God himself so that you can confirm that you're his. Peter sees a scenario when someone hears the gospel, learns about Jesus, and turns away. And they become like a dog that's returning to its vomit, a pig returning to the mud. Unchanged, worse off than when they started a biblical principle. We see it in Matthew 11 and Luke 12. The more you know, the more you know of the gospel, the more you know of Jesus, the more severe the judgment will be if you turn away from it. So if you turn away from the gospel now, you aren't just back to where you started. You're actually worse off. He's warning us about being deceived because it leads to greater judgment. Now these are these are hard things. They, they, aren't, they aren't fun to talk about. Even Jude, when dealing with this exact same topic, he said he'd rather have written about something else, but found it necessary to write about these things. So why is it necessary? A few months ago, my kids were riding their scooters around the block, um, and I was just kind of hanging out in the driveway, and I was watching. And I look down the street, and I see a car coming. And I... Yell car. And immediately my kids just like, they scatter. 
except for one of them. Cars barreling down the street. The little one decides that he can make it across in time. So he darts in front of the car. Car slams on the brake. He barely gets by. Terrified, I run to him. I stoop down. I grab him by the shoulders and said, son, you almost just got hit by a car. Never do that again. Oblivious to the danger he was in. That's one reason I think passages like this are here in the Bible. They are God's way of grabbing our shoulders, looking in our eyes and saying, you have no idea what kind of danger you're in. If you continue down this path, you are headed for destruction. Maybe this morning you've been taken in by some false teaching and haven't stopped to consider it. Maybe this morning you find yourself sliding back into old habits and lifestyles. Maybe right now, sitting here, you feel yourself being drawn in by the promises of freedom. If so, then God right now, out of love and desire for you, is grabbing your shoulders, looking in your eyes, and telling you the grave danger that you're in. And even though this is hard news, it's still good news. Because in the gospel, we have a God that out of his justice punishes wrong, out of his faithfulness rescues his own, and out of his love warns us of danger. And passages like this and sermons like this, they're, they're, they're serious things that need serious attention. But out of that seriousness comes serious comfort for when we struggle and when we're pressed down and when we're burdened. And also out of this comes serious joy of the salvation that we have in Christ. So let's take some time to just ponder and reflect, ponder and rejoice, maybe ponder and rest in the God that calls us his own. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you, Father, humbled, Lord, I am. These are difficult things to talk about. They're difficult things to understand. But, Father, we know that we know that we need to hear them. And we know that because they're coming from you, they're good. And so I pray for, for, for each and every heart, every soul here, Father, that, that you would apply to them exactly what they need. That we would be more discerning with the... With the the things that we consume and the teachers that we're listening to. Pray that we would be warned about retreating back into the lifestyle of immorality and lawlessness. Pray that we would see clearly that all the promises that the world have to offer, it's all fake and it's all phony and it's all empty. That true freedom and free, true, true joy are in you and you alone. And I pray that you would help us to pursue it. Help, Pray that you would help us to, to trust it. Father, I pray for, for all of us here that we would give an discerning eye not to just the things that are outside of us, but the things that are inside of us. I pray that, that we would do that under the banner of your love and of your kindness and of your salvation. I pray these things in your son's name. Amen.